Okay, guys, welcome back to Undressing Finance. I'm your host, Lindsay Rosenthal, and today we're at the awesome Dave Welty with Aviar Wealth Advisors. So, Dave, thanks so much for hopping on here. Well, Lindsay, thank you for having me. So, Dave, I was wondering if you can kind of kick us off with maybe a brief career history and also kind of your inspiration for starting Aviar. Brief career history. Now, that's tough when you're talking to a guy who's 61, right? You want to do that. I'll, I'll give you the 30,000 foot overview. So I actually, I might be the only certified financial planner in America who has a degree in geology. Wow, why and, geology? Um, math major, got uh, to school in Colorado and um, saw a bunch of guys and gals outside the engineering department with um, what appeared to be tool belts and hammers and whatnot. And I said, who are these folks? And well, those are the third year geology students who are getting ready to go up and to map the Grand Mesa. Wow. Uh, I said, well, what is the curriculum? And it was the, all of the basic math, biology, chemistry, physics. And so I thought, gosh, I get a science degree and get to live outside in Colorado essentially for four years. I'm sure that was gorgeous too. It was, uh, yeah, Grand Junction, Colorado, spectacular. But I took that um, degree and parlayed it into a job at Abbott Laboratories because of my science background. Um, Abbott gave me, I think, really good usable sales skills. I worked in mm -hmm. uh, laboratories. I worked uh, mostly with pathologists and clinical chemists selling these very large clinical chemistry analyzers. Oh. And then in around two, oh, I'd say mid 95, a friend of mine um, approached me and said, gosh, you're good at math. You've got good sales skills. You ought to think about coming over to the financial advisory side of the business. That's a career move right there. It is. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't know much about it. And I didn't know much about my friend, how he related to it. And so yeah. he was a commission-oriented guy. And I didn't know the difference between fee only. And that was back to when feeling advisors were very far and few between. Yeah. Um, so I worked with these guys for people who don't know the difference between commission-based and fee-based. Can you kind of give that quick rundown for my viewers who don't quite understand that? Yeah, sure. So um, when you hear about a fee-only advisor, what it essentially means is that they sit on the same side of the table you do. There are no conflicts of interest. They don't receive any fees other than what the two of you have agreed upon. It's transparent. It's usually a math calculation or it's an hourly rate. Um, but there's none of this where, hey, I'm going to recommend this large cap uh, growth manager. And by the way, I don't need to tell you this, but um, I also get a trip to Hawaii if I sell enough of it. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, I really feel like it's kind of had a transition in the financial advising industry where it used to be more commission based, very salesy. But I feel like now it's kind of like you said, I feel like a lot now the financial advisors sit on the same side of the table as the client, which is a really great move for the industry. It's really good. Unfortunately, it's still about 50-50. Really? You would say 50-50. And here's why I say that, though, because there's a lot of people that hold themselves out as, um, they say, fee-based. Mm -hmm. They say fee-only. So the difference is, if you're fee-based, that means you do the kind of work we do when people are looking, but that also means that you can do some of the other things when people aren't looking. Yeah, yeah. That's so. a really good tip, to make sure if you are contacting a financial advisor, you, you see the difference between fee-based or fee-only. It's really yeah. like a little caveat. Yeah, but in 2000, I started the firm myself, me and myself and I. And over the years, it's grown. We made a huge transition about seven years ago. Initially, we worked 
a lot with retiring telecom workers from up and down the West Coast. Interesting. Yeah, the, the demographics were such that they had 30 years, a lot of 30-year employees, 55, 60 years of age. I call them great caller America, fun people to deal with. Just kind of like your mom and your dad, hardworking, mm -hmm. um, real sensible. Uh, but then about six or seven years ago, I started looking out my office in Bellevue and realized how much we had here as far as the tech community. Yeah. And, so, and I should have noticed this earlier since my wife retired from Microsoft, right? But um, sometimes it's hard to see. Yeah, it, it took me it took me a while to see the light. But in the last seven years, Avier has become a firm that almost exclusively serves what we call the upper left tech community. So folks from Microsoft, Amazon, VMware, Salesforce, Google, whatever it may be. And there's a huge community of that around here. So I think that's really cool how you guys have focused on that because then you can really be experts in that and deliver a really great product to those people that are all in that same boat. And it's, um, if you watch any of the folks in the industry, they'll all tell you to be successful in today's world. You gotta have a niche. Mm -hmm. our, our niche happens to be, it's even more than the tech community. It's certain people within those companies. Like at Microsoft, we like to focus on what we call a level 67. That's because uh -huh. the benefits packages get really complex and we can add additional value. But um, that's interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. And then here you are today. And here we are, here we are today. Yeah. 15 of us now at Avier. Okay. I think we have nine certified financial planners, awesome. three CFA charter holders, and an, old, an enrolled agent with the IRS. Um, and we just keep growing. That's yeah. awesome. Well, thank you for hopping on here. This is yeah. a pleasure to have you. Okay. So kind of my first question is lately, a lot of me and my friends are kind of in the transition phase from going from college to, uh, to actually having a real job and having a paycheck and things like that. So we've been having conversation about what to do kind of with your first paycheck. How do you really create a great foundation for that? And I've made it very clear with my friends how the importance of really building up about three to six months of an emergency fund for any expenses that arise. But then after that, I think it's really important to kind of take a step back and look at the debt that people have. So if that's, you know, student loans or anything, other kind of debt and really look at the interest rates on that debt and see if it's those higher interest rates are really important to pay off right out of college. Then I also think it's really important to have some conversations with your company and see if they offer like a 401k with company matching. So I think kind of a mix of looking at your debts and the interest rates and then also looking at the 401k matching plan. But the most important thing of all is just kind of creating that super strong foundation of saving once you've entered to, into your job in the workforce. But I know you have a son that's um, recently going to emerge from college and start his own career. So I kind of want to hear about any sort of advice that you're giving him or any advice that you'd give other people in the same situation about how to manage that first couple paychecks out of college? Yeah. Well, I think it comes back to, I have this common theme that is save early, save often. Mm -hmm. um, it was, and Lindsay, this goes way back, but this guy came to me and he said, Dave, can you put some numbers together for my daughter so that she understands the importance of starting to save early? Yeah, I said, sure, Ed, I'm happy to do that. And what I did is I ran some basic numbers and I said, and, and his daughter was 25. And I said, and back then the, um, I think the limit for like an IRA was two grand or something. And really? I could be off by that. But anyway, yeah. I said, Ed, so your daughter's got a friend who's probably the same age. Yeah, I said, okay, great. Let's say your daughter saves the max amount in the IRA every year for 10 years from 25 to 35. Mm -hmm. 
she foregoes some of the extracurricular fun activities that we all want to participate in in our youth. Her friend, on the other hand, doesn't save a penny from 25 to 35. So they both go from 25 to 35. Ed's daughter was going to save this money religiously for 10 years. And then at 35, stop. No more, con no more contributions. Yeah. The, other, the other friend was going to not contribute at all from 25 to 35. But then catch up. Like, okay, I've been having fun, but now I'm going to go all in and go from, from, go from 35 to 65. Yeah. So one went for 10 years, the other went for 30. The question is, at the age of 65, who had more money? I'm sure the 25-year-old because of the time value of money. Exactly. And it's just early and often and be consistent. And I, I stress with Cam, Cam, it's important for you to get this foundation for investing now. And so yeah. like, we have this little thing here where I help him, I'm financially able to, but he works um, as a soccer coach in the, in the summers. And we take um, all of the money that he makes up to the Roth limits and we contribute to a Roth IRA for him. Yeah, that's awesome. for, the, for the people that aren't, that are here listening, you know, the Roth is a beautiful thing when you're in a low income tax bracket because you don't need the write off. Yeah, can you kind of describe the benefits of really taking advantage of the Roth earlier versus when you're later and you have the higher incomes? Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's this misnomer of everybody should be doing a Roth. Well, I, I disagree. I think if when you're in a lower bracket today than you anticipate being in the future, the Roth is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. And so Cam is making, I don't know, let's just call it five grand in the summer. Well, the tax bill on five grand is essentially zero. Yeah. So you don't want to put it in a traditional IRA because you don't need the tax benefit of an IRA, the deductibility of it, mm -hmm. tax deferred growth. Somebody like Cameron or maybe yourself would want to put that money in a Roth where you get tax-free growth for life. Yeah. And so you want to build that bucket up. And in investing, I think, to be successful is you want to build up a couple of buckets. And one bucket is this tax-free pool of money that grows over your lifetime so that when you become 50, 55, 60, and you want to retire, you've got this huge bucket of tax-free money. Mm -hmm. And then as you get older, when you get out of school and you get that first job, and maybe you're lucky enough to get a job at Microsoft or Google or Amazon, and they offer you pretty good money, and you go, holy mackerel, I didn't know what my tax bill would look like. Well, then you want to start taking advantage of the 401k and the pre-tax option in there and lower your taxable income and have that money grow on a tax deferred basis. Here's the kicker though, Lindsay, and here's why it's so doggone important. So once you, you know, to get people to look this far into the future is difficult, but you know, so let's say you're this 25 year old something person and I'm giving you ideas on things that are gonna benefit you when you're 55. That's 30 years. It's hard for people to get their head around that. Yeah. But the way taxes work in America, is certain dollars are taxed at 12%. And then you've got another bucket, marginal dollars above that are taxed at another level. There are people out there that pay 33% on every marginal dollar. Well, if you are, if you're retired and you could live on some money at maybe the 15% bracket and don't pull any more money out of your IRA at that bracket, but then flip it to the Roth where you have no taxes due, and now you get to live this great life by playing this tax bracket optimization. Right? Definitely. I but, think it's so important 
to be able to really as much as you can put into the IRAs and especially before like you're saying you have those high tax high taxes high levels be able to do that earlier in time so I think it's a really great point of view Roth IRA when you're young yeah max it out I write it down in history Dave Wilty Roth IRA max it out well, great. Well, thank you. Okay, so my next question for you is, <clears throat> lately a lot in the news, there's been some information about some big banks like Capital One and Bank of America really decreasing or even getting rid of some of their overdraft fees on their accounts. And I think this is super important because these overdraft fees really act as like a short-term loan with some crazy interest rates on them, like 20 to 40%. And not everyone faces these overdraft fees, but it really targets low-income individuals. And what happens is when people are facing these constantly, they really turn away from these safe spaces like banks and turn towards things that are more predatory, like payday loans and things like that. So I kind of wanted to get kind of your point of view on how this affects individuals and when banks are going to start getting rid of overdraft fees? Um, I, I think it's great, but I think it's a drop in the bucket of what really needs to happen. So <laughs> let me give you a real life situation. So Cameron's younger brother, Graham, has a bunch of learning issues, right? Where he's not going to go out into the world and be an engineer. And so we lobbied the Issaquah School District to change his uh, math curriculum Mm-hmm. So on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I, I do math with Graham. Yeah. And he's now pivoted from geometry, which is something that he'll use to the, to the extent of how many square feet of fertilizer do I need for the lawn that may be in the house I'm going to live in someday. That's mm-hmm. going to be the extent of geometry for my son, Graham. Yeah. But what's really important is financial literacy, right? And so we lobby the school and we now are, for the last six months of his high school, he's a senior. It's going to be all about financial literacy, how to, how to create a budget. What does it mean to either have a, a monthly budget or a weekly budget? What are the differences between looking at a 52-week budget versus a 48-week budget? And how do you think about what comes in monthly versus what comes in weekly? We were discussing about you know, the weekly budget. He's like, oh, dad, that would be things like groceries and Starbucks and things like that. That would be a weekly bill. I think, Lindsay, that if we could... If the banks were serious about this, they would make a huge push in this country to get people ready like my son. It's not just my, both of my kids. I mean, and Cam's a pretty smart dude, but to get young people educated on what it's like to run a budget, why it's important to have a budget. And you get that first job and my gosh, they're gonna pay me, I'm throwing a number up at 50 grand and you gotta pay your taxes, you gotta save. You got to pay yourself first. How much do I have to spend? And if you can learn how to work within this framework of a budget, guess what you very rarely ever do? Yeah. After your bank. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, like, like, I think what you're saying is the importance of even entering in earlier middle school, high school, elementary school, and really targeting these kids early to create a really great foundation of financial literacy because it's easy to talk about oh it would be really great if you invest early but if you can't even like have the basic skills of budgeting and things like that those things are never going to be a possibility so I think it would be a terrific idea for even like the money that that they're making from these overdraft fees like put it into financial literacy or you know go into or even like create some ability for people to donate to these causes to teach financial literacy earlier and it would really great great habits a great foundation down the line and, and think about 
the other effect that this would have. Because remember, if you can learn how to budget, yeah, you learn to live within a budget. You you don't have um, uh, insufficient fund charges, which go against right. So you pay your bills on time. You're not running thirty days late. And the real effect there is not the $35 overdraft charge. It's the effect that it has on your credit. Yeah. And then being able to take out loans down the line and having some crazy interest rates to, to be able to pay for a house and things like that. It really all affects your, your scorecard of your credit score. It, it changes your life. To have good credit is probably the single most important thing that an individual needs if they want to live life to the fullest financially. Because the difference of, you know, when rates were really low here a year ago, and they're still low historically for a house, but say I can go out and get a, a 30-year mortgage, no problem at 3%. Yeah. You have great credit. But if you don't have great credit, the bank's going to want to charge you four, four and a half, five. Those aren't, you know, that's a whole lot of $35 overdraft charges. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, that's real money. I think that's a fantastic point of view of just creating financial literacy courses that can enter schools in and really attract like the attention of people earlier and kind of creating that foundation. It's all about the foundation when it comes to money because everything builds upon each other. So it, it, it honestly should be part of the junior high and high school curriculum and every yeah. school in there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's just like just catching the attention of these students earlier, which should be fantastic and really set these kids up for success. Yeah. Awesome. So my next question for you is just over the past year, we've seen some crazy inflation. We saw about, I think around 7%, which is honestly one of the highest percent inflations over like the past 40 years. And um, it's really affected things like used cars and houses and gas prices. I'm sure we've all been able to see, especially when we go to the gas pump. Um, I kind of want to see what has been some advice or conversations that you've had with clients regarding investing in inflation. Um, yes, it's a good question. I just got off the phone with a really good friend of mine who's also a client, and he was asking about this just, I think, Saturday morning. And I said, Jim, the people that are in the investment world where inflation has hit them, so you got a job. And remember, job growth has almost kept up with inflation. I can tell you that we just did annual reviews at Avier, and across the board, they were higher than the inflation rate. So, yeah. so employees are keeping up, especially in a, in a job market like this. The people that really get hurt with inflation, if you're an investor who's super conservative and you have all fixed income, essentially, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So remember, fixed income is nothing more than, it's a fancy way of saying bonds. Mm -hmm. Well, if your bonds are only yielding 2% and inflation is at seven, your real return is negative five. Yeah. Right? Now, I talked to my buddy, I said, Jim, your portfolio is it's pretty traditional, it's 60% stocks and 20% bonds and 20% things like REITs and other alternative asset classes. I said, Jim, your portfolio was up about 14% last year. Why? Because you had stocks in the portfolio, you had REITs. These are things that behave favorably in an inflationary environment. So if you were a long-term investor and you've got the right allocation, you're way ahead than you were last year, right? 2021, although it's painful when you go to the pump, oh my gosh, I'm paying $4 for gas versus three and a quarter. The money that you made in your portfolio far offsets it. The people, so you have two groups of people that were affected really negatively by inflation. One is if, again, you're maybe a very conservative investor, an elderly investor, where you tend to keep your money in CDs, bonds, things of that nature, you have a negative real return. If you were lower income in America, 
and you don't have a home, because remember, homes appreciated 20, 20% last year. Mm -hmm. right? So if you don't have real assets like a home, you don't have investments because you didn't save really well early and you don't have those Roth IRAs or IRAs. Um, especially too, like wages are very sticky, especially when they're like more of a minimum wage. I feel like those type of individuals too did not see the wage increases like if you had a higher paying um, job. Yeah, but I, I but I would say though that like my office is in downtown Bellevue or Northeast Fourth, you walk across the street to go to Pot Belly to get a sandwich. Yeah. Starting wage there now is $18 an hour plus tips. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. You know, so so I truly believe I put out a um, a video six months or so ago about inflation. You know, there was this mm -hmm. whole thing of is it transitory or is it permanent? Yeah. And, and I did it about um, my burrito at Chipotle that I like. And, you know, I said there's parts of it that are transitory and part that are permanent because you use the word sticky when it came to wages. Yeah. Once you give somebody a wage increase, you're never pulling it away. Yeah, that's okay. true. That's a sticky inflationary uh, issue. So my belief was that the price of pork that makes up my pork burrito those prices would come back a little bit as the supply chain issues resolve themselves. But the part of the increase in the price of my burrito as it related to the wage component, that's there for good, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So with inflation, you're gonna have some things that are going up, some that are gonna come back. Um, I follow the price of uh, lumber because mm -hmm. we're going to build a new home. So suddenly, for the first time in my life, lumber is really important, the price yeah. of lumber. The one time that lumber is really important to you. Exactly. And it's gone from $600 a random board foot all the way to $1,700 a random board foot, back down to $800, now back up to $1,200. Yeah. I think that once COVID is behind us, whenever that is, and people, we don't have issues with keeping people on the workforce, you know, without having to go quarantine in, out, in, out. Um, you know, the price of lumber will settle back down. Yeah. Now the yeah. weight inside the mill, it's staying high. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is there any other like last piece of advice that you'd get to young investors, like really getting started with their foundation? Um, yeah. And that is, so when you think about investing, I mean, it's funny because we have a couple uh, young folks at my office who actually are SPU students. Yeah. You know, and um, I hear a lot of things about crypto and, you know, you hear about this and that. And when I think of investing, Lindsay, I think of there's active and there's what we call passive, right? So passive is just owning an index. The yeah. S&P 500, the Russell 2000, the MSCI, which is just developed international countries. The passive investing beats active investing about eight out of 10 years out of every decade. So I always tell everybody, own the world, you know, Cam's portfolio, he, he can't tell you what everything is in it, but it's got about 11,000 stocks in it. The number one is Apple, number two is Microsoft, but he owns Jones Soda, he owns Nordstrom's, um, he owns Chevron and Exxon and B of A. So you own the world, own it inexpensively, own it tax efficiently, and chances are on rolling 10-year periods of time, you're going to beat your friends who think they can pick the next hot stock. I love that. Own the world. I think that's a great point of view. Own the world. <laughs> okay, well, that's 
has been great, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on here, giving your point of view on some of these like emerging important topics. I just appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dave. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye.